Welcome to um, the Object Conference. Um, it's really nice to see so many people here. And, um, you know, I'm really excited about the programme. You know, there are lots of different kinds of books being discussed. We've got sort of soldiers' handbooks, manuscripts, letters, collage source books, and doll's house playbooks even, just to name a few. That seems appropriate in a run-up to sort of our central special panel discussion on um, the Booker's Object. And um, I'm just going to introduce our three speakers briefly. Paul Nash will be speaking first, and he's our sort of Oxford resident printing guru. Um, he's got work extensively in archives, printing, publishing history as well, and he designs and prints books himself. So he's probably going to be bringing this kind of academic and very tactile experience of books to bear on this discussion. Um, following him, we'll have Nick Cross, or his online alter ego, Who Ate My Brain? Um, and he's coming to us from the Oxford University Press today, and he's passionate about reading in the digital age, but also a children's writer in his own time. So um, I'm hoping these sort of interests in the new and the fresh are going to be an interesting perspective on our central theme. And our final talk speaker is uh, Stephen Mortar, and his work is full of complex webs and intricate overlayings of sort of language and image and space. And appropriately, to sort of this interest in kind of human geography, he's got work sort of all over the US and um, in Europe as well in public and private collections. His investigations of the subtle relations between meaning and the marks we use to convey it um, make his a really interesting standpoint from which to approach our theme. So um, without any more from me, I'm going to hand over to Paul to begin. Um, I'm going to say a bit about the book as manufactured object and about the machines and tools, which are also objects that are used to make books from the medieval through to the revolutionary periods and beyond. And I shall do it by looking at three particular examples, one printed in the 1450s, one in 1802, and one in 1893. Although I will be looking at printed books, the first thing to say is that such objects existed for many centuries before printing was practiced, even in the Orient, where it was invented before the 8th century. Uh, and as I'm sure some of you have already seen from uh, uh, sessions this morning, manuscripts are books intended to be durable vessels of wisdom, amusement or instruction, to be passed from hand to hand and read, but each was unique, was a factor of the simple technology of its production, the pen or stylus held by a scribe. From a European perspective, the invention of printing in Germany around 1440 might seem to be a sudden cultural and technological leap, either forwards, backwards or sideways, depending on your perspective. But we should not forget that the first printed books were essentially mass-produced manuscripts. It's pleasing to imagine Johann Gutenberg and his uh, collaborators in Mainz viewing the prospect of mass-producing manuscripts as proto-humanists and as philanthropists, seeking to further human knowledge, or as pious men wishing to honour God by disseminating the documentation of the Church. Perhaps they were such men, but they were also businessmen who were hoping to make money from a new printing technology which could make books cheaper. This portrait of Gutenberg um, was made about 100 years after his death. Of course, it's completely bogus. We have no idea what Gutenberg would have looked like. Uh, one thing we're pretty sure about is that he wouldn't have had a beard. Um, by this date, he was given one, partly because beards are a symbol of authority and wisdom. <laughs> um, it's tempting, too, to see early printed books as quite different from manuscripts, in that each manuscript is unique, while each printed book is exactly like its brother, and each has a great many brothers. This is true up to a point, but early printed books often exist in different states with significant textual variations, often with different rubrication, decoration, and illumination, 
and more or less always with different bindings. So while there is a certain solidity inherent in the word edition, there is flexibility too, and early printed books are rather more like manuscripts than we often reckon today. Indeed, I would suggest a more historically important difference between printed books and manuscripts was that the former were more readily available and cheaper. My first example, then, is a book printed by Gutenberg at the very beginning of this period of activity um, between around 1445 and 1455. It may have been the first book printed with movable types in Europe, or it may not. Um, it is a Donatus, a short school book, a Latin grammar extracted from the Ars Minor of Alias Donatus. The book was a quarto of around 16 leaves, 32 pages, printed on vellum. In fact, more than 20 different editions of this text were printed by Gutenberg or using his types, and it's been estimated that between around five and 10,000 printed Donatuses were in circulation in Germany at this time, in addition to numerous manuscript copies of the same text. Yet, not one complete copy survives. All survive as fragments, odd leaves and bits of leaves, like this one, which is at the Bayerische Staatsbibliothek in Munich, um, often discovered as board linings in slightly later bindings where they were used simply as waste vellum. So what did the book look like? Well, as you can see, it looked very like a medieval manuscript. This sheet, one which we use in uh, printing at the Bodleian Printing Workshop, also shows this very well. It was printed in Nuremberg, about 100 miles southwest of Mainz, in 1477. The text is printed in a type which, like the type of the Donatus, imitates a contemporary scribal hand, and the red elements, the rubrication, are added with pen and ink, just as they were in the Donatus. Both look very like manuscripts. But these are just leaves. What did they look like as books? Well, in the case of the Donatus, we can only guess. It was a pamphlet, printed on vellum, for strength, to resist use, and probably bound in a simple style, perhaps in limp vellum, cloth or paper, perhaps in boards covered with cloth or leather, but not, I think, in a lavish or expensive binding. Why do so few survive, since many thousands of copies were printed? We know that Gutenberg's great achievement, the 42-line Bible, was printed in an edition of around 180 copies, of which 47 more or less complete examples survive. But that was an imposing and expensive book, while the printed Donatus was lost because it was cheap and despised, perhaps despised even more than a manuscript Donatus would have been, because it was cheaper and the product of a mechanical process. Copies were read to pieces and discarded, or simply discarded. How is it produced? Um, in the creation of the book as object, a great many other objects are involved. This is the earliest datable image we have of a printing office. From A Dance of Death in 1499, many of you will have seen this before. It's a lovely image. Uh, if you ignore for the moment the figures of death, you see a compositor on the left setting type with a type case. In the centre are a beater and a puller working on a wooden hand press. Uh, the, the beater is holding his ink balls. And on the right, interestingly, we see a bookshop uh, where the products of the press are being sold probably together with manuscripts. Whether this is intended to be a bookshop attached to the printery is a bit unclear from the woodcut, but it, it makes the point, certainly, that books were sold. They weren't just merely printed. They were, it was a commercial operation, printing and selling books. The printing press is perhaps the most iconic element of this scene, and Gutenberg certainly needed to invent a press, but this was relatively easy, as it was a matter of adapting existing screw presses used for the manufacture of paper and for pressing cloth, apples, and grapes. Nevertheless, the printing press, seen here in a modern reconstruction with the man who made it, Alan May, was a significant technological development and remains a powerful symbol. And here is a press at the Bodleian. Um, this is an 18th century common press, but very, very similar to the sort of press that Gutenberg would have used 300 and more years earlier. 
And you can also see from this that I only have one shirt. <laughs> More important is the invention of movable type. Printing type produces a flat, almost two-dimensional image on a sheet of paper or vellum, but it too is an object, or a series of objects, pieces of cast metal, each normally bearing a single character. Gutenberg invented a method of manufacturing type, which was perhaps not quite the method used later, and which I shall describe quickly. Each font of type began life as a series of punches. Here's a punch. Each one was a steel rod with a single character carved on its tip. You won't be able to see much of that, but you can at least see this enlargement of the tip of one of them. Cutting these was precise and difficult work, and to produce a full set of punches might have been the work of a year or two, but once cut, each punch can be used to make numerous mattresses. This is a mattress. Uh, brass or copper tablets into which the punch is struck to make a die from which type can be cast. The matrix is placed into a mould and molten metal poured in here. Uh, the molten metal is an amalgam of lead, tin and antimony and in a second or two it solidifies the it's a photograph of what I'm holding. Uh, the um, type is ejected and we have pieces of metal type looking like that. These two are in the foreground of that photograph. This process has to be repeated many times, hundreds or thousands, for each matrix to cast a functioning font of type, which can be arranged into cases and used to set text. And here is some type newly cast in a case. You can tell it's newly cast because it's bright and shiny. It quickly gets some, uh, over the course of use in a few years, it quickly gets some uh, tarnished. Once finished, the type is arranged into a form and this is a photograph of a form being made up in the 1930s, I think, at the OUP. You might perhaps have seen it before. Um, but a very similar principle holds true. Um, the form is a three-dimensional, complex, and very heavy relief surface, which, once covered with a thin film of ink, is used to impress a flat image onto a sheet of paper or vellum. Thus, the production of Ardonatus had involved a great many objects, much invention, mechanical and engineering skill, manual labour and dexterity, time and expense. My second book... It's quite different, at first glance, anyway. It's a little school book. I have it here. Orthographical Exercises in a Series of Moral Letters by James Alderson, the sixth edition, printed in London in 1802. It first appeared in 1793 and ran to at least 25 editions before 1863. This little book, bought in Collier's Wood about 15 years ago for £2.50, shows some interesting similarities to, and one very important difference from, the Donatus printed by Gutenberg. Both books were produced using essentially the same technology. Both are school books, printed in large numbers and offered cheaply to read to a ready market. Both are imitations, the Donatus looking very like the manuscript grammars of the period, while the Alderson book is a close copy of the foregoing editions. We must guess at the binding of the Donatus, but we can see that this book is crudely but firmly bound in plain canvas. The books are also alike in having been despised and used to destruction after publication so that very few copies survive. We know of no complete copies of Gutenberg Donatus, and I've been able to trace only one copy of this book. This is it. <laughs> How many copies of a sixth edition of a popular school book would have been printed? Well, certainly hundreds, possibly thousands, yet this copy is the only one I can trace. The body, and I should add, has a very good collection of editions of this text. They have the first, fifth, eighth, ninth, sixteenth, and five later unnumbered editions, and when I die, they can have this one. <laughs> The great difference I referred to is in the fixity of the edition. As I've said, it's not quite right to suppose that all copies of a particular early printed book are identical. 
However, a certain stability does develop across Europe along a long period of time, during which manuscripts continue to play a significant, albeit dwindling, role. By the date of this book, by 1802, in the Age of Revolutions, we start to see something approaching fixity. The edition is more or less stable, and this simple canvas binding was used to cover many, perhaps all, copies. Well, how do I know that, since I can't actually compare it to another copy of this edition? It seems likely, since a good many copies of the other early editions are also bound in exactly this simple plain canvas style, which was common for school books. This standardisation of binding only began to glimmer at the end of the 18th century and was not the norm until the end of the hand press period around 1835. It was at this time that the reading public began to expect to buy books ready bound in a uniform style and the modern book, which reigned between about 1835 and the day before yesterday, began to evolve. I'm speaking of the common modern book a hardback in cloth with a printed dust jacket, or a paperback in printed paper wrappers. Even today, when the book is changing again, many books, a great many books, still take those forms. My third example is such a book. It's an edition of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, published in London by Bickers and Son in 1893. I bought this copy on eBay in February for £2. In 1893, one would expect the edition to be very fixed indeed, and I have no reason to think the text is not so. One would expect it to be in a conventional edition binding of the period, too. It certainly appears to be in an edition binding with a dust jacket, but it's not of the 1890s. The dust jacket appears to be of the 1930s, and indeed the cloth binding does too, and the typeface used here was not available until 1925, so it cannot be earlier than that. It seems likely that this is a remainder binding. Some copies of the books book having remained in sheets for 30 or more years before the publisher bound and sold them. The publisher, Bickers and Son, appears to have been in business until at least 1939, so may well have kept the sheets in storage all this time, perhaps binding the edition in batches as demand dictated, and that's the cloth uh, binding, which I think is the same date as the jacket. The book, despite its modest appearance, also resembles my other two examples in some respects. Although dated 1893, it was printed with the same technology Gutenberg invented. The type was set by hand, effective mechanical composition was only just coming into being at this period, and while the type might have been cast and the printing effected with more precise and efficient machines than Gutenberg used, the principles remain the same. It is similar to in being a book aimed at a school market and offered cheaply, indeed increasingly cheaply, since the dust jacket bears a sticker on the spine, reducing the price from six shillings to two shillings and sixpence. The book, too, is remarkably scarce. Bickers and Son first published Bunyan in 1881 and reprinted their edition, probably from stereotype plates, in 1882, 1889, and for the last time here in 1893. The first three impressions were issued with plates, as indeed were some copies of the fourth, but these books, were too, these books too were cheap and despised and read to destruction, so that no edition is common. I cannot find a, a copy dated 1893 in any library. Um, there are, however, four available on the internet. However, all those four are bound in leather, apparently by the publisher, to meet the demand for school prizes, and three of the four copies show clear signs of having been given away in this way, and perhaps so, as a result, had more chance of survival. I found no other copies in cloth, and none with this later dust jacket. So this book demonstrates both the poor survival rates of such objects, and that the fixity we associate with the printed book cannot be assumed even at this late date. Finally, there is one sense in which I would like to consider books as objects, and that is books as objects of desire. Um, while I would be very glad to own a Donatus printed by Gutenberg, the prospects of that are slight. However, I am very pleased by the other two books I have here for a number of reasons mostly unworthy. 
I'm not alone in loving the physicality of books, and knowing something of what went in to their physical creation adds to the pleasure, both sensual and intellectual. Quite unworthily, perhaps even idiotically, the notion that these two books are very rare also adds to my childish pleasure in them. Perhaps even more foolish is the pleasure I gained from knowing that I paid only £2.50 and £2.50. <laughs> they were bargains. Um, these two examples are perhaps not obvious examples of uh, objects of desire in the same way that early printed books or manuscripts would be. But I hope you may be able to see, if not wholly share, my enthusiasm for them as objects. I do think it very unlikely that I will ever read them. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. That was fascinating. I feel like I need to go back and rewrite mine now so it's a little more erudite. But never mind. Um, so, hi, my name is Nick Cross, and I work for Oxford University Press in the Academic Dictionaries Department. I'm afraid I wasn't clever enough to attend Oxford University when I was younger. But now I work for a department at the university, I like to pretend that I actually am clever enough, although perhaps that won't be true. <laughs> um, my career path has actually been a slightly unusual one, in that um, I think reflects the changing nature of publishing and the way that the book must change too. I began as a programmer working in mobile software, and I worked my way up to a high-level technical role. But in the meantime, I discovered a passion for children's writing. And I was spending a lot of my spare time learning the craft and, and making friends, both among writers and editors. So when the job at OUP came up, um, it was close to home and it seemed like a really good opportunity to jump across the field of digital publishing, where I uh, designed new apps and other dictionary products. With all that said, and to misquote Shakespeare, I come today to praise the print book, not to bury it. I once wrote a blog piece in which I conducted an imaginary interview with the book to find out about its long history and how it felt about all these young digital whippersnappers who were busy prophesizing its imminent death. And I did consider reenacting that interview for you today, but I realized it would be a bit like when Clint Eastwood was talking to that chair. <laughs> so instead, I wanted to look at the state of the book from four perspectives. Beauty, utility, tactility, and interactivity. And let's start with beauty because it's the easiest one. I've got three digital devices here. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about how robust they are. <laughs> um, an Android smartphone. A Sony Reader. I don't have quite enough hands for this. And an Amazon Kindle Fire. And you'll notice how all three look fundamentally the same, which is to say, fundamentally boring. And here are three books I picked off my shelves this morning. Here's Maggot Moon by Sally Gardner. Uh, the colour edition of Scott Pilgrim, which I have to say is one of the most fabulous comics I own. And Neil Gaiman's illustrated Stardust. And you'll notice, even from a distance, how different they look from each other, how aesthetically pleasing each is in their own way. I'm not a minimalist, as you've probably gathered, and I don't worship at the throne of Apple. And I find it quite baffling how people get together to compare their smartphones when they all look exactly alike. Perhaps it wouldn't be such a marked contrast if I had a pile of mass market paperbacks in front of me. But I do think that books are beautiful and each one is genuinely unique. Of course, the content displayed on a digital device can be beautiful. And the high resolution, deep colour screens offered by the best tablets can make for a visual feast. But unlike the books that overflow from my shelves, 
Once you turn that device off, it becomes a featureless mirror, reflecting nothing but middle-class boredom. <laughs> that wasn't necessary to it. Um, <laughs> I saw a recent article where a photographer was charting the visual development of various household objects through the 20th century and into the 21st. And what I found so depressing was that for so many of these myriad different objects, the music player, the alarm clock, the telephone, the final modern incarnation was the same object, a smartphone. We seem to have swapped objects of beauty for an object of multifunctional utility. Which brings me handily onto the second perspective of books I wanted to talk about. Utility is an area where the dominance of the print book is less clear-cut. If we're choosing something purely on its functional merits, what wins out? The single function, single title, print book, or the multifunctional Swiss army knife that is the modern smartphone. I believe that for deep linear reading of either fictional or non-fictional text, the printed book is still the best vehicle. It's light, portable, needs no batteries or subscriptions. It contains no intrusive adverts, hyperlinks or surveillance technology. In the absence of a direct brain-to-brain -brain link, it's the purest way of transmitting content between author and reader. But for non-linear content, especially in the world of reference where I work, the book has, up until recently, merely been the most convenient way of delivering the content and not the best. If you consider a printed dictionary, it has an A to Z structure only because that has been the most efficient method for the user to find the entry they're interested in. When we free the dictionary from the printed page, we discover all sorts of new ways to index the content that greatly improves the experience. When you want a dictionary definition online or in an app, you can simply type the word in and get straight to the entry, or even use voice control if you don't mind looking a bit mad. No need for endless page turning or the disappointment when you think the definition isn't in there because you've momentarily forgotten how to alphabetize. <laughs> Dictionaries, along with journals, are the, area of academic, the areas of academic publishing that are experiencing the most aggressive digital growth and the fastest falling off of print sales. And this, to my mind, is fine. No longer do we have to deliver the Oxford English Dictionary at 20 volumes once every 50 years. We can now provide the whole thing through a single website and update the entries as often as <coughs> necessary. In fact, I was unable to bring even a single volume of the print OED with me to illustrate this point because it's too damn heavy to carry on my bike. And so on to tactility, which is to say, touch. I could have picked smell here, which would have been incredibly easy to cover, because books have a wonderful evocative smell, and digital devices don't really smell of anything at all. But touch is interesting because it's been one of the selling points for smartphones and tablets since the iPhone was introduced. We've all got very used to using touch to navigate through apps and around the home screen, even to the extent of using two or three finger gestures to execute specific tasks like rotating and zooming. And I'm sure you've seen the videos of these poor young children trying to tap on the pictures in a printed magazine because their parents consider that leaving a baby with an iPad is a suitable alternative to reading them an actual picture book. But for all this digital tactility, the touch of a printed book remains a very individual and evocative thing. We feel the weight of the volume in our hands, run a fingertip along the binding. We can navigate from one end of the book to the other at incredible speed just by using our thumbs. There are a lot of claims made for the ease of use of touchscreen devices, but really what could be simpler and more intuitive than picking up a printed book? 
My final category is interactivity. Again, the digital medium seems like a slam dunk. Ebooks can have so many hyperlinks embedded in them that your fingers get sore from all that swiping and tapping. But I think this ignores the effects of reading a linear printed book at a neurological level. Getting engrossed in a linear fiction book is a very interactive experience. It sets off all kinds of fireworks inside the brain and can literally change the way we think and approach the world around us. Digital publications, however, offer totally new ways to interact with words and language. I've already talked about how dictionaries can be searched and interrogated, but this applies to many other subjects. Pioneers in the field of true digital books, such as TouchPress, are producing fascinating new iPad apps based on existing texts, like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and Michael Morpurgo's War Wars. These apps go beyond the capabilities of the printed book, allowing users to examine the original folios, hear dramatisations of scenes, and delve into the related sources that inspired the work. They complement the original book without supplanting it, like having a mini-research library in your hand. Sally Gardner's award-winning Maggot Moon is another example of a title that's had a digital makeover that really enhances the original text. The protagonist of Maggot Moon is dyslexic, and the iBook version offers iPad users a host of quizzes, videos and activities to help readers to see the world through dyslexic eyes. All this digital augmentation is great, but I'm most excited about the possibilities for interactivity within the narrative itself. Where can we take the story in this brave digital age? Rather than providing distraction, could carefully curated hyperlinks within a story actually serve to deepen the emotional experience for the reader? In the form of storytelling called transmedia, readers are presented with a tale that spans many different forms of media, with narratives jumping between websites, comics, books, TV episodes, and even Twitter feeds. I ran a whole session on transmedia at a writers' conference last year. And if you go to my website, whoatemybrain.com later, you'll find a link to a summary of that discussion. As a final interactive possibility, what about reading an intelligent story that tracks your emotional response and uses that information to make the narrative even more scary, even more thrilling? There have already been successful experiments with branching films that monitor the viewer's heart rate and skin temperature. With the developments in eye-tracking technology and facial recognition on modern digital devices, can the artificially intelligent story be far behind? In the past, it's always been the case that you were the one reading the book. In the future, perhaps it will be the book reading you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm going to give a little uh, kind of artist slide talk to, uh, in some ways to, to show you uh, a little bit about myself. And um, I just wanted to spend a few minutes describing how map making has entered my practice and how the processes have led to the introduction of words and symbols within them. It may shine a different light on the subject today, as in a sense, you know, a lot of my work is uh, edition prints, as well as an iPad app, which I'll touch on later, of two works, and original works, you know, the paintings and drawings. But it's uh, the, really the looking into the, the constructed language that we have of words and symbols that is concerned mainly with what I do. Some examples of, uh, that's a map of Liverpool. And that's the centre of Liverpool. 
In 2008, it completed a portrait of London that took over two years to create. I called it the island. It is a celebration of the city as an icon, its etymology of its place names and its folklore histories. Also its idiosyncrasies of the past, present and future. It glories in the macrocosm, the great mass of lives and stories and the theatre of ideas that London is and inhabits. And it jollies in the local and the personal nature of experiences. It is also autobiographical. This, is, this shows Dagenham and my epithet to depressing trips to my nan's house as a kid. Trent Park on the, on the north outskirts of the city, which is the playground of my adult youth. Different areas have their personalities. Here, Clerkenwell and its prevailing values and its political leanings of the past and, I say, as today as well. It also has tongue-in-cheek references to celebrity culture. Here in West Ham, where Arnold Schwarzenegger, whilst living in London, pumped his muscles, I suppose. <laughs> also a district stereotypes and clientele, and it is purposely at times both light-hearted and caustic. The island glories in the geography of the place and the artistic entropy that results from a task of such detail. The city has a coastline running along its borough edges, which is a wry joke on the city's own self-importance. Carshalton Beaches here has become Carshalton Beaches. The, epithet, the epithets are based on an inherit, inherited reality, edited by what I felt would be telling of a place. A synthesis between what I wanted to record and the popular histories that have accumulated over time. In this respect, the island acts as a mirror onto its viewer in a shared response. This is a Caspar David Friedrich painting, heavily influenced by Romanticism. And, you know, I, I, I earned a... or gained an interest in the mode of landscape as a tool for contemplation quite early on in my studies. And the anthropomorphization of objects as elements within the scene and Ruskin's The Pathetic Fallacy. I spent much of my formative years as a student searching out small corners of utopias in the areas that I frequented, mainly the suburbias of British industrial cities. Basically, through a process of scrutinising certain viewpoints and repeating the compositions through expressive mark-making, the repetitions of paring down processes created a set of abstract signs and symbols. The repetitions were heavily influenced by Mondrian's journey into abstraction, from still life to seeing through the objects to a spiritual, with inverted commas, plane. In photography, the intermediary for me was the window. And here, from a room of, of my upbringing, 
It created a synthesis between the internal space, the intermediary itself, the window, and the landscape beyond. With continuing mark making, I was I continued to burgeon a set of or a lexicon, a growing lexicon of signs and symbols. Real places were again the prerequisite for my expressions. By this time, also, the world was having more and more influence over me, strong, with strong, a strong sense of a kind of distance between a first-hand relationship with the natural world and the concerns of Northern European Romanticism. More and more of my interactions, as still is the case, were done through commercial modes of consumerism, preordained formulas. So the old process of scribing dream tracks through dull suburbias was kind of lost its relevance. And I wanted to find a process that was both deeply personal and that expressed this detachment. One that talked about commercial interactions between groups of people or communal interactions that I enjoyed so much on the football terraces and, foot and, and pop festivals. So I turned the process on its head in 2001 and I started to use known signs and symbols from the public arena to produce new images. They were, in a way, remixes of ready-made from culture and re-representations of actual forests, as shown here. Henry Dreyfus's symbol source book of 1976 was a great reference for me, after seeing the work of Jean-Michel Basquiat and the hobo signs of the 1920s and 30s in the US, where hobos would inform others by chalking onto pavements and fences a kind of subcultural language of signs and symbols, such as road spoiled, full of other hobos, dangerous neighbourhood, warning or letting know, of fresh water and safe campsite. This led me to two drawings produced over the best part of two years, where the pieces of paper were treated as crusts of land themselves. They were receptacles of their own histories. And on to landscape. And from here to maps, and of course, map keys. Because for me, they were about landscape and they were full of these signs and symbols. And from here, I began to map both real and made-up places. In these maps, individual stories and epithets arise out of subgroups. The informality aids a new and unexpected understanding, perhaps, of subcultures and unusual places. They are a passing down of a verbal history that can now be presented by maps and give rise to further histories and learnings of folklore that perhaps, again, transcend the physical space and the physical form. Here is a map uh, that was commissioned in 2012 by the London Transport Museum to map underground London. Gathered mainly from reading, from books, archives, websites and a few contacts and occasional journeys below the ground itself. At first I assumed that the poetry of this project would come 
from the rumours, perceptions and the legends of the underworld, crime networks and underground movements. However, the lengths to which the authorities go to withhold information from me and from us and the, led to the intrigued and made the task simply of finding out and mapping them an adventure in itself and the two fingers up at the, th- the authorities. With the time restraints also, I simply wouldn't be able to include all the many idiosyncrasies that I had in mind that were included in the island piece, the above-ground version of this sister piece. But shining a light on the clandestine world of utilitarian tunnels and passageways, touching on the folklores and legends attached to certain places, would be good enough for this piece. So London Subterranea geographically plots many of the interesting things that I found out about that exist under the city. And in seeing London as one of the great living palimpsests of our time, it got me thinking about history and layers and the language that I used. So... Also included in this are some literary references and, and to Dickens. And what I started to do was rename some of the stations, some of the names of the stations to rekindle the area's past and anoint emotions to certain sections of the transport network. Farringdon becomes Venice of Drains. And Bermondsey is renamed, renamed Jacob's Island in memory of the infamous island slum of filth and squalor, where at Folly Ditch, where the, where the, Neckinger, the, the old Neckinger River fingered its putrid way to the Thames is where Bill Sykes met his end in Oliver Twist. I celebrate London's burial sites, many of which have now been concreted over. Also, well, also time restraint so let me just fire through some of the other things of this map and I contacted London uh, basically uh, the Museum of London and the osteology departments and here I track the perceived ancient route of the of the shoreline of the Thames East Smithfields just east of the tower is perhaps the mother of all plague pits I also track other Mostly human aspects, but pre-Roman settlements, druid sites such as Tothill Mound, which is where the seat of power in Westminster now resides, and the remnants of Celtic tribes. Also show disused tunnels and London's ghost stations, stores of hauntings on the network, and of course the great post office railway, which was only decommissioned in 2003, running from Paddington all the way to Whitechapel, with about, I think, about seven stations, transporting four million letters a day. But now it's easier and cheaper just to do it by road. I also track the sewage, the main sewage network, left over from Bazalgette's brilliant initial invention. Also, some of the secret, deep-lying governmental tunnels, such as Kew Whitehall, 
and I also record known prostitution strips and dogging sites <laughs> as, as perhaps things being slightly under the surface of culture and the pirate radio stations and of course areas such as Mel, 195 Melrose Avenue where the remnants of Dennis Nielsen's 12 victims probably still lay in tiny fragments or at least that's how I like to romanticise it. <laughs> also my dad was a London cop and he told me of some of the underground, the crime that happened in his reign and this one kind of, well celebrate, I don't know, but certainly notes the, uh, the corpse of Tommy Ginger Marks which is to be rumoured uh, to be still under the flyover, unfound, near Brent Cross Shopping Centre. And of course, Rankin Dread, the drug lord of Hackney. And of course, the great Tyburn tree, which is reported that 40 to 60,000 corpses were buried after being hanged on the famous gallows. And uh, just to finally go, go into uh, very, very briefly the, uh, what we've done with uh, my friends at COGAP is uh, this is the first of hopefully a growing set of, uh, well, works. But uh, I've done a, um, an iPad app that you can switch to and from the island, which is the overground map. And... The London subterranean, and zoom in and out as you would uh, usually do with these uh, the, these applications. Um, so you know, I, I tend to flatten the old traditional way of printing images and words, but to create pictures and hopefully enrich a, a reading experience. And also, um, this is the start of some of the interactive elements that can be done with things like the iPad app. Um, yeah, with many more things to come. We haven't quite got there to be able to pinpoint your exact position and then look where, what you're standing above and also adding tabs and growing communities and layers of information. But that's the start of where I am today. Thanks very much.